to another episode of Gilded Age, the podcast where we discuss how and why we're fucked. Today, we're joined by Malika Jabali, who is a writer and journalist for Current Affairs. Um, and Malika, you wrote, I think, probably the best uh, article to come out of 2018, and it was called The Color of Economic Anxiety. I would highly encourage our listeners to, to uh, read it. It's it's not a it's not a super long read and you'll get a lot out of it and I think it, it does a lot to explain the current moment that we're in. Um, so let me start out by welcoming you to the show and and thanking you for joining us. Thanks, Walker. I don't know if we've talked in like a couple of years since the, since when I actually published the piece. So has it been that long? I oh, think God. so. Time time just like I don't know. I find as I get older, time just evaporates. <laughs> Really does, yeah. And and one moment I'm I'm uh, like 27 years old, and the next moment I'm I'm 32 and wondering what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> yes, I think that's a common feature for people. It's it's also very cute that Walker thinks that 32 is like very old. Uh, <laughs> I'm 37, and he talks to me like I'm I'm his grandfather or something. <laughs> Yeah, I think after 30, you just, you feel like you're a grandparent at that point. Um, I don't know. I guess the older you get, the older you, the 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 younger, the younger are the people seeing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, kids today, let me tell you. No, I'm like, for real, like a two-year-old <laughs> to me is like a child. Like, you know, yes. anyway. We're using that, those tick and talks and all those apps and Talks, <laughs> the apps and talks. Yes, there, there you go. I've actually never. I don't have a TikTok account, so maybe that makes me old. Yes, Alex, do you have a toffee candy, a hard candy? Werther's original. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, what what are your takes on on the election? Like, like what the hell happened? There are a lot of different takeaways, I think, from the election. One of the best that I've seen is from David Sirota, who he has a, a sub stack that I've subscribed to and he had six takeaways. I think, I think I'm familiar with that. <laughs> yeah. And one of the one that stood out to me is the embarrassing performance of centrism and how Joe Biden really overplayed his hand thinking that he was going to get all these never Trump Republicans over to his side. And when you look at the electoral map, I think a lot of us, I was actually surprised. I'm not going to lie. I was surprised by the consistency of red states to vote uh, for Donald Trump, to vote for Republicans and by the way that this has played out as other elections do. I assume that because we are in an unprecedented pandemic, we are in an unprecedented moment of social justice, activism, and uh, people looking about looking at transformative justice, that we would actually have a bit of an unprecedented election. But things are kind of going about as usual. And so I was a bit surprised at that. And so I think what that shows us is along with things going on business as usual, you have to get back to the base. The Democratic base is in a lot of these 
working class communities across race. It's not going to be with appealing to wine moms and, and suburban um, Republican voters. It has to be. So, so you saw that segment too. <laughs> what, well, no, what segment? Joanne Reed was literally talking about wine moms. And uh, it was telling Rachel Maddow about, about wine moms and how Biden had a lock on the wine mom vote. Oh, I didn't, I did not even know. <laughs> I did not watch that, which is pretty interesting because that's, it, it's, there's, they're so predictable. <laughs> so even without watching it, I can just tell you what the takes mm-hmm. are going to be. But when you look at where some of these like nail biter and it's, it's almost by um, like artificially this, these nail biting battleground states of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, because they could have counted these absentee ballots and, and mail in ballots much earlier than they did, but they Republicans chose not to. But we're forced to rely on these same three states again, as we did in 2016, to look at the election results and to see where it's turning. And if you look at the county of Milwaukee, which is where uh, the majority of Wisconsin's black population lives, their voter turnout increased overall. If you look at Madison, which is a liberal part of Wisconsin, you know, they've got the, uh, it's a college town, their voter turnout increased for Democrats. If you look at Flint and Detroit, uh, Wayne County, their voter turnout increased. And so that is, and those two states ended up going for Joe Biden. So I think you really just have to get back to the brass tacks of what actually is proven to win Democratic presidencies. Now, we we didn't see this in, in 2016. Um, it didn't break the same way, obviously. That is why Donald Trump is president. But uh, your your take on that on that election was was uh, I thought very uh, spot on. And, and that is that everybody was while everybody was sort of focused on these Obama to Trump voters, your your focus was on the people who didn't end up turning out the the working class voters, uh, particularly black working class voters who didn't turn out in these Rust Belt states. What has been, um, ha- obviously that, that is, that has changed, but it's still, these are still nail biting elections. So what do you think Democrats need to do in order to turn these voters out more consistently and in larger numbers? They have to look at their actual economic policy. If you look at the extreme economic conditions that the working class is experiencing in the Midwest, in states like Wisconsin, in Minnesota, in Michigan, Pennsylvania sometimes counts as well. It's definitely a a Rust Belt state, though not necessarily the Midwest. These are states where the especially in Wisconsin, the black male incarceration rate is the highest than any other state in the country. The black male unemployment rate is higher in Milwaukee than any other major city in the country. Minnesota has the highest, and that's not, you know, a swing state, but it's, it's a mid, it's in the Midwest region and they experience many of the same ills of deindustrialization and offshoring and suburbanization and segregation. But Minnesota also has the highest inequality for a lot of these economic indicators. So if you are not getting at what affects people's day-to-day lives, it's going to be harder to maintain enthusiasm, period. The economy is important for a lot of voters. 
Healthcare is important to a lot of voters. Wisconsin and Michigan are COVID hotspots. So it's not only a health crisis. Wisconsin has the highest, for instance, Wisconsin has the highest uh, rate of disparities between blacks and whites and death rates. The last time I checked, the death rate was 10 times higher for black Wisconsinites than it is for white people in Wisconsin. Like that, that is absurd. These are things that we have to actually grapple with people's day-to-day lives. No one wants to hear about Ukraine. No one wants to hear about Russia. I've been reporting in the region for three years. These are not the things that come up for people. It is $15 is not an adequate minimum wage, let alone $750. It's $25. It's Amazon is exploiting, exploiting us. And all these other uh, warehouses are exploiting us. Illinois, for instance, is a hub for warehouse work where uh, a lot of workers are being undermined and fired and they have to work through temporary agencies because they don't get benefits. And it's another way of being able to lay workers off faster. These are the bread and butter kitchen table issues that apply to workers of color, but we tend to not think of these voters as working class. They tend to be kind of erased in this whole kind of framing of the disaffected white Trump voter. Do we know the um, black turnout in some of those areas like Milwaukee area or, or Wisconsin more broadly? When I look at the county results, it's unclear right now what the the race results are until we actually get census data. I think that that's kind of the most reliable indicator. The census comes out with a voter supplement about two or three weeks after the election, and they break it down by state in terms of what were the the like ethnic uh, ethnic breakdown of um, voter turnout. So we don't have that yet, but what we do have are numbers based on the counties. And so the voter turnout in these counties increased, which is what I'm suggesting is why Joe Biden actually won. He got back the Democratic base in places like uh, Wayne County, which is the the home of Detroit, and in uh, Milwaukee County, the home of the city of Milwaukee, which, by the way, is 40 percent black, which is more than Chicago, a greater share than Brooklyn. It's a lot of black people concentrated there. So he won back those counties in higher numbers. At the same time, the voter turnout for everybody increased. So it also increased for white voters. And so what happens happened is that the black voter share actually declined because the white the the raw numbers for white voters also increased. So that dropped the uh, black voter share by a hair. Um, I believe in Michigan, it might have been down by five percentage points. In Wisconsin, it was down by one percentage point. So if you know that you might have a flood of uh, voter turnout for Donald Trump, that means you should get somebody representing the Democratic Party who could get a flood of enthusiastic voters who typically vote for Democrats. And that didn't necessarily happen. I think people showed up the way that they're uh, supposed to do. I think, I mean, it definitely increased, but you needed even more enthusiasm to combat the enthusiasm amongst Trump voters. Yeah. And also in in terms of uh, the the House and the Senate races, um, doesn't seem like there was enough there. Um, and it, it, Don't even get me yeah. started on the state house races. Oh, oh. yeah, yeah, that sounds even perhaps worse. But um, I mean, it's pretty clear Source to me, subjects. like uh, from preliminary data, that yeah, the wine mom thing just didn't work. I think white women 
um, over half of white women still ended up voting for Trump, despite polling showing that they were possibly going towards Biden this time around. Um, and then in terms of, you know, these are different house districts, of course, are, are gerrymandered uh, small regions within the states. But um, a lot of the most of the house losses from the Democrats that we've seen so far that have been declared are these blue dog Democrats or otherwise pretty conservative Dems who were supposed to be kind of the bread and butter for increasing in the majority in the house. Um, so I, I wonder how that kind of plays into um, the whole idea of, of just kind of campaigning to the wrong people. Yeah, I think it totally does. If you go and look at even some of the uh, propositions that have passed in some states, I think Florida had a, a paid family leave act that was actually passed through uh, one of their propositions. So on the ground in the more local uh, statewide elections, what you're finding is that voters themselves are actually in these quote unquote conservative states, voters are actually interested in progressive policy. But when it comes to presidential elections, there is a different calculus that I think both voters and Democratic Party leaders or party leaders make where they assume that the electorate is more conservative than they actually are. And so it, it's almost like um, like they're they're making that reality happen. And so if voters think that this is the way the Democratic Party is is going to go, then that's the way that they're going to vote in the primaries, for instance, in the Democratic primary, but it doesn't actually speak to what a lot of their interests are. So if you look at the exit polls from South Carolina, where we were supposed to have, you know, supposed to be this big um, kind of coming out for Joe Biden, most of the policies that people were inclined to agree with were Bernie Sanders' policies. They, most of them wanted Medicare for all or some sort of universal health care, and they were under the impression that Joe Biden was fighting for Medicare for all or some, you know, or universal health care. So these local issues definitely play out differently when you examine them more locally. So then how, how do you fix that? I mean, how do you, I mean, I guess, I guess the, the thing that I struggle with, with the, um, with the democratic party is like, how do you balance all of the various, uh, like interests that are that are involved and i think that the way that the party has done it so far is that they build on the labor of working class um, communities of color and then the people who sort of set the agenda the people that they pander to um like we'll do whatever you want are sort of the more conservative white suburbs and that ends up and and of course donors and that ends up uh, watering down any agenda that they that they that they do offer which sort of spits in the face of the people whose labor they they uh rely on to get elected so i guess the question is like how how can this party make a, a real adjustment to overcome decades of this behavior in in people's minds yeah the triangulation that joe biden has advanced since he's been a senator that Bill Clinton hinged his entire campaign on, that Hillary Clinton thought that she would won on. I think that it is in the Democratic Party DNA at this point, I think because they are a capitalist national, national party. I have no other reason than to believe that they're gonna continue in catering 
to, um, they're going to continue catering to those interests. They're going to continue catering to their donors. They're going to continue catering to corporate lobbyists. So I don't, frankly, I don't think it can be reformed. I think what's going to happen is you're going to have insurgent candidates who win in spite of Democratic Party leaders. You're going to have a Cori Bush. You're going to have a Alexandra Ocasio, uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Elon Omar and candidates like this who are progressive. But I do not think that it can happen from the top down. I don't think party leaders are just going to suddenly wake up and get on board. They haven't done it in years. Unfortunately, what they took out of Obama's win is that let's just put a person of color on the face of our corporatism, because now they're doing the same thing with Hakeem Jeffries and like, oh my gosh, we need to replace Nancy Pelosi with some progressive energy. What about Hakeem Jeffries? <laughs> it's like, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I wonder, well, but actually the, um, the, the more conservative Dems are, are rebelling and they, they kind of want Jeffries, it sounds like too, which is um, interesting. I, I wonder what the difference between Jeffries and Pelosi even really is, uh, policy-wise, strategy-wise. I don't know if there is anything. And also, is this just an act, sort of a, a contest of convenience? Like we if we have a if we have a conservative and then we have Pelosi, well, your options are either this conservative guy or Pelosi. So like we win. If if the if like the progressives don't put up their own candidate, their options are conservative or Pelosi, right. kind of like last time. Yeah. But the question that I was that I was getting at is. In the minds of voters, the Democratic Party already has a reputation, an established reputation, um, and it's not necessarily a good one. Uh, I think for a lot of people in the country, it is not a good one. So how do you overcome that? <laughs> explain more what you mean. It's um, Explain what, you, what reputation you're referring to. So there are voters in this country who would never think of voting for a Democrat, even if they agree with the policies that the Democrat is, is putting forward just because the Democrats, for whatever reason, the Democrats are the party of NAFTA, the Democrats are the party of civil rights, the Democrats are the, for whatever, whatever the, the reason is, certain voters will never vote for, for a Democrat. How do you build back trust in communities that you need to build it back in, with particularly working class communities, who feel that the party has sort of abandoned them? I, I think it's going to... I guess I can go back to my original answer. I think it's going to be up to certain individuals. I don't know if it's the party per se. I think as in like coming down from the, I think it's going to be rank and file, uh, not rank and file candidates, but candidates that aren't establishment Democrats. Like, I don't think that they can come from, you, you understand what I'm saying? Like, I don't think they yeah. can come from that, um, that democratic tradition where they, they mold certain candidates and they promote them. So Hakeem is, is that type of candidate. So if you look at the way that machine politics works um, in certain states, for instance, in New York, you have to be a part of the democratic club in order to be a part of the machinery. You have to join the club. You have to basically kiss the ring of the democratic party bosses, and then you can elevate through that. And Hakeem Jeffries is one of those people who was able to rise in the ranks through kissing the ring of Democratic Party leaders. AOC was somebody who was challenging that. She, uh, I can't even, Joe Crowley, you know, he was uh, the big boss. 
in Queens. And so he challenged him. So I think you, you're going to need just insurgency. And so these people happen to be Democrats because most people who align with their policies are also Democrats. Most rank and file Democrats are. So if you can appeal to rank and file Democrats with progressive policy, that's probably the only way you can get folks who uh, didn't consider the Democratic Party to perhaps maybe vote for a candidate who's a Democrat. Yeah. And I mean, it, talking about New York politics on the state level, and, and which, of course, is, is extremely um, dominated by these kind of this kind of democratic machinery, um, I think it's a lot more positive than maybe the national level um, in terms of, I think, six or seven socialists are now going to be part of the state legislature, two of whom are going to be my reps in the Senate and the and, uh, the state Senate and the state House, the state Assembly, which is which is pretty awesome. Um Jabari yeah, Brisport. one of them is mine too, Jabari Brisport. <laughs> oh, we must live kind of near each other then. Um, yeah, and Farah yeah. Sufran Forrest is going to be in the in the House, I think. So, or the Assembly. So that's I mean that's I mean that's pretty encouraging that a lot of and I think I, I saw a stat today. I mean that we're still counting ballots in some races, but I think something like twenty eight out of thirty or something twenty eight out of thirty two mm -hmm. DSA endorsed candidates have won their general elections, which is a hell of a lot better than. Uh, at least the media likes to portray it in the past elections. And I was I was just sort of musing on Twitter, like, are we going to see the same kind of, uh, maybe we're actually going to have a little bit of a respite from all those Atlantic and Bernie candidates no, lost. Well, <laughs> no, they, they are not. No, we're not. They have to lie. If they were going to write it down, no, they have to lie because, I mean. You act like that's such a heavy lift for them. Well, uh, <laughs> they can, I mean, you know, Edward Isaac Dover can can always lie. Uh, you know. he's, 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 he's there. He's ready. But I mean, what, is, what would they have to write? about because i mean most of the dsa candidates actually won these four candidates lost oh yeah let's sure. look at why <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i'm waiting for the 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 you know, autopsies on i'm telling you on the blue dogs and i i, I maybe i should write the piece because i mean six or seven have lost now out of maybe only 20 or 22 in the, in the whole caucus so that that's to me is that's the big story of the house of the congressional races the blue dogs went down i just this election to me is just like, how do you, how in a year where 233,000 plus Americans die from a pandemic that the president, the sitting president allowed to just spiral out of control and melt the economy, which was already in dire straits. I mean, I, I think... 2019, it was 78% of full-time workers living paycheck to paycheck, 40% of all workers struggling to afford basic necessities. Most people not having, you know, the statistics, no, most people can't afford a $400 medical emergency or like how, how in a year where that stuff gets compounded, does Joe Biden or do Democrats, just generic Democrats lose down ballot? How do they lose House seats? How do they not take the Senate? How do they get crushed at the state level? Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a rhetorical question, but it is it is very absurd. <laughs> and oh, I, I, want, I want to hear what you, what you both have, have to, I, to say. You know, I, I think the, the verdict is still out on exactly what's been going on, but I think we can make our assumptions by looking at Things that are very, very obvious. One is what are people voting for? I think there was so much attention on the fact that we have to get Trump out of office, that there was very little on what are the policies that we need the Senate to pass? What are the policies that we need 
the House to pass. So a number of, of the growth in the, the Democratic turnout, I would wager, is just because people felt a sense of urgency about removing Donald Trump and very little um, it was very little attention paid to the types of policies that the Democratic Party wants to advance to get people out of this nightmare. People are in, in an economic and medical nightmare and very few, very few of, of Joe Biden's positions address that. So I think that's that's a key element of it. There was very little messaging, I think, about what the Democratic is the Democratic Party is actually for. Um, it was mostly about appealing to the soul of America and our conscience. And people are saying, okay, well, I already understand that the soul of America is pretty shitty because you're allowing, you know, people are allowing all this to happen. We know that. So then what what's the next step? Right. Can't I can't eat the soul of the nation. <laughs> exactly. I can't pay my medical bills. I can't pay my student loan debt with the soul of the nation. So what exactly are you offering? What tangibles are you offering? And these are things that working class black people, I mean, excuse me, working class people across the board have been saying. These are things that a number of black people kind of low key have been saying, and they've just been shamed into just getting Trump out of office. But you hear you hear it more and more. What you know, where is the where is a black agenda? What is the plan for America's black communities? Yeah. And yeah. Or just I haven't heard it. Yeah. Right. If if there is that plan, I have not heard and, it. And Biden does have some detailed plans, but yeah, he doesn't really talk about them. And the party doesn't talk about him much. I mean, you know, I, I actually it sounds like one of his best plans is his environmental plan. I haven't read it, but a lot of environmental activists who I, I trust and I know are sincere are like, this is actually pretty good. We actually got him to cater to a lot of stuff, <laughs> but um, you hardly ever hear about it. Um, actually, there was a tweet today from a friend of the show, Zerlina Maxwell, and it just said, this election was not about- Did you just, did you, you, did, you did. <laughs> This election was not about policy. It was, this election was about racism. Um, and it's just, I don't know what to say to that. It's like, obviously racism, race play, racism plays a huge part in all this, but like, I mean, what you were just saying, like, like if maybe it wasn't, a, I mean, I think it was about a lack of policy, but like, it, you know, even playing the devil's advocate to say, okay, it wasn't about policy. Well, maybe it's cause like no one talked about it, but really people wanted it. Yeah. I think what, what happens at least as, as long as I've been covering politics over the last four years, more in depth is that people forget that there are two parties involved and there are two sides of races you have a Republican party that is going to appeal to its base. And so you're going to have certain truths about those candidates and the voters who vote for those candidates. But then you also have the Democratic Party and you're going to have certain truths about the Democratic Party and why they may win or lose elections. And so while on one hand you have conservative voters who vote for conservatives in similar numbers as they have been for the last four decades, they vote for Republicans for a reason. Yes, the GOP is a party that caters to kind of the the worst of you know stereotypes about people of color. They cater to all types of delusions about small government and how we need to get government out of uh, you know people's lives. They cater to Which a lot of code for civil rights. <laughs> right, exactly, and so they they cater to that. So you have an opposition party that is supposed to then offer something else. 
And so we already know, you know, the majority of white voters are going to vote for the GOP. So then what then will bring the, you know, non-majority of white voters to vote for Democrats? What will bring black people to vote for Democrats? What will bring Latinos and, and Asians to vote for Democrats? You always have to have something to offer the opposition. And so you can never tell just one half of the story when we're dominated by two parties. Racism is a part of it. People are also experiencing a lot of other things that happen. You know, there is economic anxiety that makes people of color stay out of the voting booths altogether. So you can't just pin it on one side and what they're doing. You always have to look at what the other, the, the opponent is or is not doing in these elections. You know, and it's interesting, too, that Trump has made gains with Black and Latino voters that Republicans haven't had in generations. I mean, that's scary. It's man. true. But also, I think I think some of that was based on exit polling. And then when you look at some other polling, it's not quite is as it, Is it outdated? I saw something where, like, I think some of the more drastic numbers weren't quite, like, they, they were probably exaggerated. Um, but I, I do still think it's, it is the case that there has been some even minor shift towards Trump among some. Obviously, it's going to be minor, not 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 a major. But. Yeah, and I and I really don't think it's as much about people finding Trump appealing as just finding Democrats Democrats unappealing. I don't think this was a pro-Trump shift as much as a nothing is working for us, so let's this is our last resort shift. I think that has more to do with it than any. You know, there was this long opinion piece in um, NBC. They've got this like vertical called Think, I believe. And so over half of it was about how conservative black people are. And I'm like, that's not why people are voting for Trump. I think they're voting for Trump because they have no other, they have nowhere else to go. Where else are they going to go? You know, if they're being forced basically to to vote, to vote or die, they're like, well, you know, I don't want to be, you know, get a tongue lashing for staying home again. So, all right, I'll participate in this sham democracy of yours. And I think that was a protest vote. You know, I don't have any data on this. I haven't, you know, um, this is mostly anecdotal. I've talked to people in person, some black voters who've, who've said that they would support Donald Trump, but it's more so out of exasperation because they see no form of, of hope for the Democratic Party. And so that that gets back to the, how does the Democratic Party rebuild those relationships and and it's not i don't think it's going to be easy and i don't i don't know if it like i don't know if it's capable of doing it within the time frame that it needs to do it in so yeah the issue i think is the time frame but also you know thinking about obama's two campaigns i mean i I wasn't very impressed with his presidency but his campaigns were both brilliant and they were both basically wipeouts he did attract some crossover votes from from the right without i think really without catering towards them too much and that that to me because obama was great at the base and, and getting new voters who kind of would kind of come into the base and I don't think he really catered towards the right in the way that that Pelosi and Biden and the whole Democratic Party infrastructure today likes to do. But he still was successful because he I think he did a good job of pretending that he was going to enact a lot of progressive economic policies. Um, and as a campaigner, he was very good, very convincing, probably both. of Yeah, uh, yeah I think Ohio is is an example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wisconsin is also a good example of that. Obama actually Indiana. got. He won well, he Indiana won in 2008. I think in 08 he won Indiana, which is one of the most crazy. Wow. Yeah, I can't even imagine that right now. We're in such a different economic climate, but 
my first bit of canvassing in the mid- Midwest was actually in Ohio. And there was a lot of populist sentiment across the board, across ethnicities, um, from Arabs to, you know, white voters to black voters, where they were totally against Mitt Romney. They felt that he was elitist and out of touch. And Barack Obama won Ohio handily in both elections in 2008 and 2012. And so that that populism where he I mean, he really keyed in on Hillary Clinton being out of touch and catering to like these offshore companies, catering to corporatists. We don't have Democratic establishment frontrunners who talk like that. I was just tweeting. I was like, one time in my, just one time before I'm dead, I just want to see a real leftist get the Democratic nomination and run in our lifetimes, just once, just see what happens, right? Because, you know. Well, I think I think we're owed at this point, right? I mean, like, can we've we tried just try their it? Way. Yeah. We've tried their way and, and like the results are diminishing returns. I mean, yeah. Obama's, Obama's coattails, like for what he accomplished, they don't seem to be very long. And, 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 and again, I can't, and I can't stress this enough. They got wiped out down ballot in a census year when Donald Trump presided over the deaths of 233,000 Americans. It's a disgrace. Yeah, I mean, the problem is every, everyone, I think the problem is everyone basically is mapping their own preferences onto their analysis. And so if Biden pulls this how off, dare you? we'll say, I oh, well, Biden, how could, Biden won. He, 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 he ousted an incumbent president, which is generally a very hard thing to do. But of course, we have extremely extenuating circumstances this time around. So probably, in, as Sirota, I think, said, like an inanimate object could have beaten Trump. Um, so Biden <laughs> winning is not a huge accomplishment. But, you know, some people are going to pretend it is. Um, I don't know how they're going to explain away the the centrist or the, really the conservative House Dems losing, but clearly they, the ones who remain, are saying, well, the, the, the you know, Pelosi's too liberal. Like we need to get another one of us, like an even more conservative Democrat to run the DCCC and to to be speaker. And somehow that's going to like trying to be even more Republican than we pretend to be is going to help us beat Republicans. That makes no sense at all. It's pathological. <laughs> yeah, the contrast between what is happening in this vacuum amongst blue dog Democrats and what's happening on the ground is so stark. And it would be humor- humorous if it weren't so tragic, if it didn't lead to people dying, if it didn't lead to people feeling shackled by debts of all kinds, if they weren't being imprisoned at disappointment disproportionate rates, you know, and people can joke about, um, or, you know, they can try and shame black men and and ice cube and all these other folks who are like, well, what tangibles are the democratic party showing us? But these are our men who are, are dying at the hands of police who are being harassed by a fascist state. And so if our only option for them are two pro cop law and order (laughs) candidates, what does that say about us as a country? And it's, 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 it's tragic. It's tragic to the point of like, I I would not be surprised if you have like a lot of black people just talking about up and leaving this fucking hellhole. Like I would not be surprised if you did not have more of us expatriate, if you did not have um, just more everyday Americans suffering from like 
drug abuse and and substance abuse. Like it is this is depressing. I'm sorry to end it on that note, but <laughs> no, no, oh, I mean, no, I, look, it's, I, I think there already are. I mean, I, th- I think alcoholism has increased, drug use has increased under Trump. Uh, I, um, I was, it's not just Trump, of course, but like the kind of fascism that he's he's really kind of, I guess, put in the mainstream or sort of uh, openly uh, advocated as opposed to just kind of being uh, sort of a little bit less overt. Um, but I, I will say one, in, in terms of the Democratic Party and reforming it, one positive development, I, I think is maybe a long shot, but still kind of good to hear. There's an article a couple weeks ago, and I think the, progre- the Congressional Progressive Caucus is going to reform itself, and they're going to basically impose requirements on uh, member on uh, attendance of meetings. So a lot of the people who are, it's like 100 members of that, or something like that, 80, 80 or 90. A lot of them don't show up to meetings. Um, they're going to impose um, voting it kind of unison voting requirements. Like if a certain, we have a certain majority, a certain number of people, also our policy, you all have to, or you're out. So they're trying to make it smaller and more actually progressive instead of just these people who want the bona fides but don't actually participate. So that's gonna that's gonna make it a little more effective. I'm not convinced it's gonna get small smaller enough and ideologically aligned enough to really matter. And that's when I think the squad is going to have to kind of go off on their own, maybe. They're only going to be seven or so, maybe six or seven members. I don't know if Montero Jones is going to join, but I think Corey Bush tweeted today that he's kind of hinting that he might. So that would be seven, I believe, with Jamal mm-hmm. Bowman. Um, if Marie Newman joins, that's eight, but I don't really see her joining that. But I think she's been... Yeah, these numbers are, are tiny. You need a, you need an 80-person... 80 80 well, no, I mean, I, I think the Freedom Caucus initially was something like 20 or 22 maybe but that's a lot more than eight or seven so they got um, 80 new republicans elected in 2010 right but the freedom caucus was very effective and they were only 20 or 30 but um that's still much bigger than we're talking about but i i think that like at least there is a positive development in terms of progressives in congress trying to they, they kind of realized like especially i think it was with how pelosi basically negotiated all the coronavirus bills by herself with no input problem which i paul tried and Pelosi was like, fuck off. So I think they got, they're a little angry. Mark Pocan is resigning. So it's just one, it's just one chair instead of two co-chairs. I think that's a little bit easier to manage. So anyway, that's something to, to sort of watch and hope that it might help a little bit incrementally for talking about the party. Personally, I, I, I kind of agree um, that people are going to have to, oh, I guess I was going to say, um, in your article from 2018, Malika and Current Affairs, like one of the people you talked with was basically like, yeah, I think like, is it time for a third party? Is it time to go independent? Like, what do we do? And, I, you know, it's, it's always that question, right? Every, every two years, we're like, God damn it, this party sucks. But um, <laughs> I think it, it, if not now, when, right? Like as Walker said, there's not a lot of time for the climate crisis and everything else. Uh, and the impending uh, 2024, the, the, the new, the next Trump, um, is going to be worse. So it's like, I don't know. I'm kind of, or just Trump again. You might, people might have to try <laughs> and just run, break he off. He could run again. He could run again. Well, there's a lot of little Trumps. Yeah. It's a little, it's a little unclear. We're working class voters and progressive and radical and socialist voters go from here. I think you're going to have a lot more people who are independent and, uh, they might go down the party line in local elections and just kind of do a wait and see approach when it comes to the presidential election. But in terms of consolidating their interests and, uh, and aligning their interests into a some sort of formal organization, that seems 
like a, it's going to be an uphill battle um, in the United States because the two parties are so entrenched and our primary process is so dependent on those those power brokers making things happen. So it's like you have to play the game, but you can't, you know, it's a catch for me too. You have to play the game in order to have any influence, but you really won't have any influence um, playing the game. So, you know, I'm at, I'm honestly at a loss. And I, I think, I think the focus though has to be on what, what that future looks like and instead of necessarily trying to fit it within a party that I, I personally don't think can be reformed. I mean, I, I, I completely agree with that. I, I think this, this is a, this was a very telling election and who knows? I really, what, what frightens me though, is that I think that a genuinely populist party could win. Um, like a genu- a right wing populist party could could really do very well. Um, that sort of combines the economic agenda of of the left with a more nationalistic um, and anti immigrant uh, far right, and that's that's awful that we are in a position where that lane where the the sort of those policies have been left on the table for people who are um, fascist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that there has to be a left-wing party that, that embraces those policies quickly and, and gets it out into the, into the mainstream as quickly as possible. And I, I agree. I don't think the democratic party is that party, but we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Anyway, thank you for joining us. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to keep you for the, for the rest of the of the night. I'm sure that you've got work to do. Um, but it, it has been a pleasure and I hope that you'll join us again. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you inviting me and um, you know, I guess we just kind of keep the, the fight going in whatever capacity that we can. It's our only choice. Tell everybody where they can find you and your work. I'm at Twitter, Malika Jabali. Um, I guess you can put it, I, should I spell it out? Yeah, we'll put it in the in the show notes too. We'll put it in the description. All right. Well, it'll be there. <laughs> so I'm on Twitter. <laughs> uh, a lot of what I do is there, or you know, my Pythie tweets are there. Um, but I'm also a columnist for the Guardian and Gin Magazine, so you can find no some longer of- current affairs. Well, I, I write I write for um, all over, but I do write for current affairs. Okay, cool. I didn't screw up the intro then. <laughs> Maybe I'll redo um, the intro based on this. <laughs> yeah, but though that's where I'm formally a columnist at those two outlets, but you can find my work all over. Yeah, and we'll put the we'll put your excellent 2018 article in the show notes as well. And um, also, yeah, I also really appreciate you coming on. It's great to great to talk to you. No problem. She's also a phenomenal filmmaker. What? Uh, thank you. I did a short film. You can find it on YouTube, oh, cool. bit.ly slash left out 2020. And it's actually looking oh. at these disaffected voters, black voters who are a part of the working class and in the Midwest, which is quite evergreen as we are seeing right now. Audio editing by Alex Koch. Original theme music by Direwolf. Published by Opt Out News. <laughs>